In Jerusalem, A.D. 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. And out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 hearts were transformed. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity and garnered praise. Peter and John then continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. In AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon, and the enraged crowd stoned him, making him the first Christian martyr. Around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians, and Saul became Paul. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the Apostle James and had Peter arrested. But an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of the prison. As the believers were scattered because of persecution, the center of operations for Christianity turned from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey. On his final missionary journey, Paul traveled through Galatia, Phrygia, and Ephesus, encouraging the disciples in the cities. He then spent three months in Greece before traveling to Jerusalem, where he was arrested. Paul was then sent to Rome for trial, but the ship wrecked on the island of Malta. When he finally arrived in Rome, he lived there for two years before Nero ordered his beheading. And after 28 chapters, the story of Acts came to an end. Yet the story of the gospel didn't stop there. Out of joy, the church multiplied. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Just a short little video there for uh, just some catching up purposes of where we've been in Acts and actually where we're going to be going in Acts. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we've talked about the multiplication of the church that is happening in the area around the Mediterranean, and it really is out of the joy of the hearts of the believers that the church is spreading. It isn't through sword, and it isn't through conquest, but out of the joy of people's hearts for, for God's great plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now, we're going to be camping out in the last maybe six, seven chapters of Acts today, and we're going to pick up the journey of Paul and the church as Paul brings himself back to Jerusalem despite some warnings from his friends. Now, the book of Acts, if you haven't picked up on this, contains much in the way of history and not as much in the way of theology and doctrine, although it is certainly present within these chapters. Um, So if this has ever felt like a history lesson to you and you're like, I don't want to be in a history lesson, just know that it's that way because the text leans us in that direction and we want to try to honor the text. So Before we jump into this um, last remaining bit of Acts, I just want to put a thought into your head, if I could, just a perspective to think about as we read about Paul and his journey. These are our ancestors, right? This is our family. Many of you may know that, but many of you may not comprehend that completely. These are our people. They are our heritage. You may not be blood relatives with these men and women, but they are definitely your family, because we know this, the work on the cross that Jesus Christ did for us not only brought us justification through faith alone, that God on that cross provided us justification that we could stand just and right in front of the God of the universe, removing our sins and our guilts, 
We are blameless, but it also brought to us a spirit of adoption, and that spirit is called the Holy Spirit. And it says this in Romans 8. This is what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the Holy Spirit brings us adoption, and with that, the knowledge that we are his and he is ours. Now, it is not the case that everyone who has walked the earth are sons and daughters of God. Of God, He is not the father to all. He is the creator of all, but he is the father to those who know Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit. Just as though there are numerous children in this world, Camille is mine. So that's just a little perspective for you. So we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, and the people in this text, these people in the Bible are our family, and we can have identity and take ownership in that. I'm married into an Italian family. Uh, it's certainly good for me, not for my waistline, but I don't know if you've ever been to an Italian family dinner. Like my wife, her dad is one of eight siblings, and it's just loud. Like, it's just, like, I think that I'm a big personality, and when I go there, I just tend to just sit in quiet, because there's just so many big, and they're, the first time I came into the, this scenario, I thought they were arguing, but they weren't. They were just talking, and it was good things. I was like, hey, Julie, I like your hair, and like, what are you yelling at everybody for? And it's just like, that's a, that's a good meatball over there. Why are we yelling so much? But I had to get used to that, but the Italians are an incredible group of people because they take so much stock in their heritage. When I was there, I would hear stories of their great-grandpa Mazzoni, who with 10 cents in his pocket, boarded a boat in Italy and traveled to Ellis Island, came to America, and made, uh, he was a self-made man. He realized the American dream, and they took pride in that. There are pictures on the wall dating all the way back to Italy that you can see as you walk into the house, and you'll hear phrases all the time like, well, Grandma never put that in her sauce, all right? Or that reminds me of a story of Uncle Tony. And it seems like there's always an Uncle Tony in every Italian family. Just this guy, he's always a little bit on the shady side. <laughs> and he makes some bad decisions. But they take pride in their family, great ownership in who they are. And it's okay for us to have that same pride with the people that we know in the Bible. They are our family. These are our forefathers. Great-grandpa Paul, Uncle Barney, great-aunt Priscilla. It's your legacy. It's our identity, and it is God's command for us that we would pass down to the next generation's story of his faithfulness and goodness to our ancestors. So when we last left Paul, he was planning to return to Jerusalem. He's in the city of Ephesus, and a man named Demetrius is causing an uproar in the city because he's a silversmith. And his business is being affected by Paul. Paul is preaching against polytheism and idols. In a silversmith in Ephesus, his job would to be make silver coins with the, the pictures of idols and gods that people would take to their house and they would have daily worship. He is upset because Paul is hurting his business and people are not buying as many silver coins. So he causes an uproar in the city and Paul barely gets out of it. 
Nothing happens to it. It dies down. So after this uproar, he heads to Macedonia, preaches the gospel there, and then from Macedonia, he plans to head to Syria, but he learns about a plot to kill him, so he returns back to Macedonia. Eventually, he ends up in a city called Taurus, which is in kind of modern-day Turkey. And there's an incredible story here in Taurus in, the, in Acts 20 that I just, I, I like this story. And you may think that I'm really kind of weird for liking this story when I read it to you. Uh, but there is a story of a man who is sitting on a window when Paul begins to speak. And Paul had plans to go to Taurus and leave the next day, but it says that he was still speaking at midnight. So he's speaking for a long time. And all of a sudden, this man that's sitting in the windowsill falls asleep, and he falls three stories to his death. Now, you may say, why why do you like that story, sicko? If you're going to create a religion, if you're going to write a book to deceive the masses, would you really write in it a story of a man that talked for so long that he put somebody to sleep and he fell to his death? That doesn't seem beneficial in any ways. This is why I love the, the Bible. It shows the good, the bad, the silly. Now the good, the good part for this young man was that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, brings him back to life. So lesson learned, young man, don't pick risky seating when Paul is preaching, right? You should be, comfor- you be, you should be very thankful for comfortable seats, right? Yeah. So Paul travels to Maltus. He's joined by the elders of the church of Ephesus, where he gives his only sermon, his only speech to an entire Christian audience in the entire book of Acts. And he says some meaningful and powerful things in it, and I want to read it together. It's in Acts 20, verses 18 through 25. So let's pick that up. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how, how I lived among the whole, you the whole time for the, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And I was just, the, this week I was just overwhelmed with like emotion, just reading about my family, just like my brother Paul, and these words are just so eloquent, and he just, he's talking to his brothers and sisters, and he knows that he's not going to see them again, and he's okay with that. You just see the contentment and the commitment that is present in Paul. He is so sure of his calling. He is so sure of his Savior He's so emboldened to spread the church, to spread the gospel, so much so that all the trials and the sufferings that face him do not concern him. He knows that imprisonment and afflictions will face him every single place that he goes, but he still goes. 
And reading this, it just makes me ask a lot of questions of myself and my sacrifice and my convictions and a whole bunch of other questions. And I want to talk about those questions at the end. But Paul leaves Miletus and eventually heads to a place called Patera. It's in Asia. It's also kind of in Turkey. And he boards a boat to Tyre. Now he's back over by Jerusalem. Tyre's just north of Jerusalem. Now, on his path from there to Jerusalem, it's important to note that he's being warned the entire time not to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 21, there is a prophet named Agabus from up in Judea, and he tells him this vision. And let's read it together here, starting in verse 10 in Acts 21. While we were staying for many days, this is Luke talking, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Just note that he's speaking through the Holy Spirit here. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So Agabus is speaking through the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to Paul a word or a vision that something bad is going to happen to him and he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles, which we know to be the Romans. So everyone who hears this, except for Paul, is convinced that he should not go. But note that the word from the Holy Spirit did not tell Paul not to go. It told him that bad things awaited him. But listen to how Paul responds to this vision. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, he ceased, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul is not having any of this. He is so constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, so eager to spread the gospel, so eager to spread the church that his own life does not matter. Is this not heroic? I mean, we write movies about this stuff. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem and goes to tell the church elders all the things that God had done amongst the Gentiles, and they rejoice. And then they warn him. Look, Paul, there are many Jews that are upset with you because they believe that you have been teaching the Jews across the Mediterranean that it is okay for them to forsake Moses by not having their children circumcised and not follow the customs of the Jews. This is what they believe. These are false accusations. Paul did none of these things. Paul has never commanded any Jewish person not to do these things. He has been advocating to the Gentiles who are not held under the same law as the Jews are. So to show the Jews in Jerusalem that he is indeed following Jewish customs, he goes through a series of ritual washings and ritual vows showing that he indeed did not object to Jewish converts following Old Testament customs voluntarily, just as long as they did not make those same expectations for the Gentile believers. Now all of these things that Paul does seems to be done in vain when we read about Paul going to the temple in Acts 21. So we'll read that together. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Didn't go so well here. 
And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He took at once soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him bound to be bound with two chains. So yeah, it did not go as expected or well for Paul. Fortunately for Paul, the tribune sees this and he commands his cohort. And a tribune is just a Roman commander. And a cohort is about a thousand Roman soldiers. So he takes him down there to stop the beating before Paul is killed. And we see how ugly this scenario is, is because it says that he was bound by two chains, not the wrapper, but two chains, which meant there was a Roman soldier to his left and to his right for his own protection. Most people think that this is the last time that Paul will be able to willingly walk and go where his own good conscience determines. Many believe that, this, that Paul will be in imprisonment or some sort of capacity, if not for a very long time, forever. But his influence here, his influence and his word will remain free until the day that he dies, and we'll read that as we go forward. Now, the Roman citizens have Paul in custody, and they are stretching him out okay, to be whipped. But Paul reveals that he is a Roman citizen by birth, and it is forbidden, forbade by Roman law to flog a Roman citizen without a formal hearing or sentencing, so Paul catches a break, maybe one of his only breaks that we see in the book of Acts. He is not flogged because of his citizenship. But to understand why Paul was being beaten so severely, the Romans take Paul the next day to be in front of the, Rome, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, <laughs> and Paul, being Paul, <laughs> takes advantage of the opportunity, and he kind of stirs the pot up a little bit, and we'll read that interaction here in verses uh, Acts 22 and then in Acts 23. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this, po- this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you are quartering me to be struck. Paul calls Ananias here a whitewashed wall. And that is a metaphor for hypocrisy. Ananias is a tragically bad high priest. And he has met his match in the Apostle Paul because we know that the Apostle Paul is an expert in the law. And he knows that in Leviticus 19 that it forbids injustice in the court. So Ananias commanding him to be struck violates that. Now Paul will continue to use his knowledge of Jewish law to cause dissension amongst this Sanhedrin. So let's continue to read. Those who stood by said, this is Sanhedrin, would you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, just to say, it is very believable that Paul does not know that Ananias is the high priest. Let's not forget, he has been gone on journeys for a very, very long time. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Note how cunning and knowledgeable Paul is. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Once again, Paul escapes barely. This is the second time that Paul gives a defense speech in front of somebody. It is the second of what will be six different times from now to the end of the chapter that Paul has to defend himself and defend the gospel in front of other people. He will, his audience will range from, from a Roman tribune to the Jewish Sanhedrin to the governor Felix in Rome to the Jews and the leaders uh, in Rome, to uh, King Agrippa, the Jewish king. The rest of the book of Acts is Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome to plead his case to Nero Caesar. And that speech is not recorded anywhere in the Bible. On the journey, Paul faces a tremendous amount of hardships. Tremendous. He is in prison for upwards of four years, two of which are in Caesarea, he is on a boat and gets lost at sea. He is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. For three months he's shipwrecked, and during his time on Malta, he's bitten by a snake in which the natives of Malta surely believe that he will perish because of it, but Paul is not harmed one bit. Eventually, Paul ends up in Rome in AD 60. He's 55 years old. Now, from there, many people think, not many, some people think that he was released by captive and went to Spain. In Rome, Romans, the book of Romans, he has an intent to go to Spain, but some believe that he stayed in Rome the rest of the time. But we do know this. He was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero in AD 68. What a hero. What a hero Paul is for our church. The cost that he bore to spread the church was great, and he suffered incredibly. Listen to his own words. This is the most accurate depiction of Paul's suffering and journey that I find anywhere in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians, he is forced to again defend himself and his ministry and his God-given authority to Corinthians who are questioning it, and listen to what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And when Paul says that, he says, I'm talking like a madman because he knows it's foolish in the eyes of God to try to rank yourself better than another human being. And so he says, I'm talking foolish here, but I'm going to do it because I'm defending myself. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? I mean, this is just, I mean, this is amazing. What he went through for us. To get this to us. His conviction and his joy for the church has changed the world. And we are the beneficiaries of it. And it's not just Paul. Our other saints, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they paved a way for us. Look what happens after Paul's death and the death of many of the disciples. Watch this video. Out of joy, the church multiplied. In AD 80, Christianity spread further to the countries of France and Tunisia. 20 years later, the first Christians were reported in Algeria and Sri Lanka. By AD 150, the gospel reached Portugal and Morocco. Christianity found its way to Austria in AD 174, followed by Switzerland and Belgium. In AD 328, the gospel reached Ethiopia. Almost 200 years later, Pope Gregory I sent Augustine of Canterbury and a team of missionaries to present-day England. And within the first year, they baptized 10,000 people. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries arrived in China. In AD 740, Irish monks brought the gospel to Iceland. But it wasn't until AD 900 that missionaries reached the country of Norway. Out of joy, the church multiplied. By 1200, the Bible was available in 22 languages. In 1491, missionaries arrived in the African Congo with the first church located in Angola. A few years later, Kenya reported its first known Christians. Meanwhile, in Spain, Pope Alexander VI wanted to send Catholic missions to the New World. As a result, Christopher Columbus took priests with him on his second journey to the Americas. In 1531, Franciscan Juan de Padilla started his mission work in Mexico City. By 1550, John Calvin sent French Protestants to reach the people of Brazil. In 1640, Jesuit missionaries finally reached the Caribbean, landing on the island of Martinique. Out of joy, the church multiplied. Then we have the pilgrims make their journey over. The Great Awakening happens in America, and the church begins to thrive in America. Brothers and sisters, do you know the cost it took for our forefathers to get the church to us today? Do you know the cost it took for our forefathers to bring his word and his church to us today? I cannot read the missions of Paul and the stories of my other brothers like Peter and not ask myself the question, do I know what it cost? Do I know what it cost? Does it mean anything to you 
to know how much it cost our forefathers. I mean, we can come in here every week in this local expression of the church at Life Community, and every week we can sing songs and hear sermons, but does it ever strike you the cost to bring God's gift to his people to us? Does it ever strike you that it was brought to us on a path paved with torment and blood? And it's not just Paul. I mean, let's look at the rest of the disciples. Let's look at their fates. I mean, you can read this. Simon Peter, crucified, upside down. John was exiled, but he was boiled in oil in Rome. Matthew died a martyr. Thomas, speared to death. Simon, crucified. James, stoned to death. Tertullian, who is a prolific Christian writer in the second and third centuries, said this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. He's also said, the more you mow us down, the more numerous we will grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And I am just amazed at the price that they paid because they were so convinced, so sure of Christ, so sure of the gospel that they refused to bow down and they were killed for it. Doesn't it say something that so many men went to their graves for Christ? I mean, you have to ask yourself a question. Would one be tortured and killed for a lie? And doesn't it say something that no one or somebody would crack if this was a bunch of lies? Doesn't it say something that nobody did that? And it doesn't stop with them. I mean, Barnabas, who's one of my favorite people in all this, was stoned to death in AD 61. And his, his compadre, John Mark, who, who caused the split between Paul and Barnabas, was present at his execution. And not seven years later, in AD 68, he was dragged to pieces by the Alexandrian people. Polycarp who was an early influential leader of the church in the second century, was burned at the stake. Ignatius, the third bishop of Antioch, an important city for the church in this early stage, was arrested and taken to Rome and thrown into the lion's den. He was thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. And these are some infamous words that he said before his death. Now I begin to be a disciple. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. And these are just a few of our brothers and sisters who perished. I mean, if you want to read more, there's a book called Fox's Books of Martyrs, and they will list out all of our brothers and sisters who died for this cause. And this isn't even including the Reformation, when, when people perished for going against silly indulgences and papal supremacy. I mean, do we know what it costs to get the church to us today? And I'm not just talking about our church, but the big C global church. Do you care? Because you should. Because without this institution, there is no hope for this present world. No hope. God loves his church. It says that the church is the bride of Christ, and he loves it. Do you? 
can we quit being critical in our speech of the church and start doing actions that would help it to prosper? Do you love the church? Or is it just something you do on a Sunday? Is it just something that makes you feel good? Is it just something to belong to? But is it something that you would die for to see it prosper? Because many, many have. And might we consider that? And might we consider this question? What will I give? What will I give? What will I sacrifice to make sure that God's church moves forward so the next generation could hear stories of his faithfulness and goodness to our ancestors and to ourselves? Because you and I can trace ourselves back to about 120 people in Jerusalem standing face to face with the resurrected Christ who said to them that you will receive the power. It is now our turn. It is our turn to run the race because somebody sees that opportunity for you. Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe it was a friend or a close family member. Maybe it was a coworker. But somebody sees the opportunity for you and I. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for me. They told the gospel to us. They made much about the name of Jesus Christ to us. And it is our turn now. It's our time to seize the opportunity. So will you pass this on? Will you give? What will you give? Is it your time? Is it my talents? Is it my treasure? What will I give? Because it will and has to cost you something. Jesus says this very plainly in Luke 14. He says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... And this is Jesus speaking. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Have you considered the cost? And I'm not talking about your life being taken. Have you considered the cost in our comfort, in our status, in our positions, in our finances, that we would let the Christian life permeate every part of our life. Because if we live for Jesus Christ and he is not some add-on that we connect to our life to hopefully improve it, but if we live for Christ as our preeminent source of all that we are, it will cost us. Because you will be different in this world. Absolutely. And they will notice. They will notice. And you will be labeled and you will be laughed at and you will be considered weird, and you will be rejected for, I mean, you name it, for, for the way that we date people, that we concern ourselves with somebody else's heart so much and not ours, that we're old-fashioned and slow, for the way that we raise our kids, that we instill discipline and obedience in our kids, 
that we teach them to, to love each other, that we would help them to obey and submit to authority and good standing with respect, that we would help them to empathize and care for the world around them. And that's crazy. Or for the way that we work, that we don't take shortcuts, that we're not willing to do the unethical thing just to make our bosses happy, that we work hard and we give what we have and we do the right thing and you will miss promotions and you will lose jobs because of it. For the way that we make money, that we don't treat people as means to our ends and financial gain, that we're not concerning ourselves with making a quick buck, but doing it the right way, and you will lose finances, and you will lose good standing with your bosses, but we do it because the gospel of Christ compels us to do so, and we live for him and not for man. Do not let the book of Acts go unnoticed in your life. Do not drop the ball on what our forefathers handed us, but always remember this. They had, and you have, and I have, something that this world will never be able to extinguish or defeat in the living spirit of God that rests inside of us. And he will hold us fast. He will hold us fast and secure. The, whole, the, the book of Acts is much in the way of courageous men who strive forward to bring the church into greater prosperity. But more so, it is about a God who gives us all that we need to attain those things. That the Holy Spirit of God emboldens us, advocates for us, strengthens us for his namesake. And he will hold us secure. Though our bodies may perish, his spirit will not. You know, for as much as we talk about the Romans in the book of Acts, and they are an incredible empire. They're mighty. Some would say that they're the most dominant and greatest empire in the world's history. Do you know that right now that you can go to Rome and you can buy a ticket for $12 to walk in the ruins of the Roman Colosseum where our brothers and sisters were tortured and killed? $12 to walk in the ruins of Rome. Brothers and sisters, have no fear. We've already won. Our God will outmove he will outlast and he will outlove the most tyrannical, the most oppressive regime that you could ever know. And he is for us. He does not stop. He will not stop. He is an all-consuming fire. And he has asked you and I to pick up our cross and to join him. And it will come with a cost. Will you give it? To end, I just want to read just a segment of scripture out of First Peter. I'm just going to read it to you. It's not on the screen. And I just want you to take these words and have courage with them. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest. A holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are an incredible God. You do not stop. And I thank you for the courage of my brothers and my sisters that I read in this book of Acts. And I thank you for their commitment and their sacrifice 
God, will you always remind me the cost that they paid so I could be here today and enjoy your word? God, will you always help us to consider the cost? And will you help us to consider the question, what will I give? God, will you move in our hearts today and arrange things, move things, so I get a better picture of who you are and how I serve you? Thank you for never ceasing. And thank you for being an all-consuming fire that fights for us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your incredible name. Amen.